just the week before, if not two weeks before we opened, we were gearing the restaurant not to be, uh, we didn't want it to be just a kid-friendly place. You know, we wanted it to span the spectrum of anyone from like age one to 101. You know, that, yeah. we wanted it to be very uh, appealing to, to adults, young adults as well. So we actually did our All-American, which is one of our most popular songs. We didn't even have that on the menu. Like we weren't even thinking of kids at the time. We also didn't have kids at the time, right? right. So it was something that we were kind of wrong. We're like, well, we should put something basic on, I suppose, just something that everyone knows. And so we came up with the American Cheddar Blend and threw it on the menu, which, in, you know, again, in hindsight, it was so funny that we weren't even thinking that way. But it is, of course, one of our most uh, adored recipes by kids and some adults. Welcome to The Profitable Table, fed by Wilco Foods, the nation's first podcast devoted to the restaurant industry. Now, here's your host, Wilco Foods CEO, Stephen Toberoff. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Profitable Table, fed by Wilco Foods. I'm your host, Stephen Toberoff. And today I'm interviewing someone that I've been really dying to speak with, and I was just looking at the website, and now I'm super hungry as well. For those of you like myself that love macaroni and cheese, and uh, who doesn't, this is an episode you're going to want to save and treasure. I'm interviewing Sarita Ekia, the owner of SMAC, which stands for Sarita's Mac and Cheese. Sarita, thank you so much for taking the time today to talk with me. Oh, thank you. It's a real pleasure. So, Sarita, my first question, and, and I, I, I think an important one, is what made you decide to commit to the restaurant centered around mac and cheese? And if you could even go a little bit further back into your story that sort of led you to this place of, of opening up Smack and, and, and how you got there. Yeah, sure. Our, our story of uh, opening up Smack is... <laughs> it's now 15 years old, believe it or not, which is kind of crazy. Wow. Uh, I call it, call it my first child. But uh, <laughs> in a former lifetime, I was a mechanical engineer and my husband, an electrical engineer. And so we were living in New Hampshire back in 2005. And we used to come to the city regularly. Like we just couldn't get enough of coming to, into Manhattan. And even if it was just for a day, we would drive in early and like leave past midnight just just because we love the energy of it. And we kept saying, you know, one day we'll move to the city. One day we'll move to the city. So Memorial Day of 2005, we were driving back late one night. And basically, we looked at each other. We're like, you know, we keep saying this. Let's just do it. So we chose. We said September 1st, 2005, we are going to move to Manhattan. And then once we made that decision, September just seemed so far away. So we actually ended up moving July 31st. We basically sold off everything we owned and moved ourselves. Uh, we landed a sublet in the East Village on 5th Street between 2nd and 3rd Avenue. It's still one of my favorite blocks in the city. Great block. It's Yeah, it's a great block. Still tree-lined and a lot of local businesses. I love the East so, Village. Yeah, it, it really, it's it, you know, it's changed a lot, but I, I, my heart is definitely still here. We live here, we work here, we, we do love it. So uh, we moved, yeah, we moved in July 31st, 2005, and and we basically were just going to look for engineering jobs. You know, the market was really good at the time, and both of our companies 
were lovely enough to give us remote work. So we we're doing like kind of part-time work from from home. And in the meantime, we were interviewing for jobs. And we're also, the biggest thing was we just started eating out like crazy, like breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you know, the, the whole gamut because you're totally. in New York City. Totally. And, you know, I was born and raised in a small place, Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, Canada. And then I moved to a small place, Manchester, New Hampshire. So this is my first real experience living in a city. And of course, like we picked New York City, right? So it's and, like and, and, a great, and a great part of New York City because these villages go in 24-7. Yeah, it, right. So that that was the other thing. You know, we moved July 31st. I think by the time we unpacked some of our stuff, it was like two in the morning. We walked out and we had like a full meal, you know, right on 2nd Avenue and 4th Street. And it was like, awesome. like, this place is just going nonstop. So, yeah, so we started eating out and we got really enticed by all of the niche restaurants, especially, again, in the East Village. The Village also has a bunch of them. And it was, we thought it was so interesting that there were these places that, that were kind of hole in the walls that picked one thing and did it really well. And we just started, like, frequenting those in the month of August. So, literally, as soon as we moved. So, we, you know, we went to a couple of dumpling places. We went to a milkshake place that was on St. Mark's that's no longer there. A grilled cheese place, a rice to riches, uh, you know, rice pudding place. And then we landed ourselves at the peanut butter company, which... I know them was, very well. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, uh, they had that storefront, which is no longer there, but of course their peanut butter is just everywhere now. Uh, and it's wonderful peanut butter. So we were eating there. And I remember just kind of being in disbelief that there was a place that just did peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I look at, you know, myself 15 years ago. And of course I was in disbelief then. Now it's like, you know, why wouldn't have there have been a restaurant like that in New York City? But I, we were eating lunch and I said to my husband, Caesar, I said, you know, wouldn't it be great if there was a place that just did grilled cheese? Because we had just gone to a place like that, uh, PB&J and mac and cheese. And I'm like, oh, mac and cheese. You know, that's the next restaurant we're going to go to. We're going to go to the mac and cheese restaurant because, you know, there's got to be one. And we started kind of, you know, looking around. And back then, this is, we're talking 2005. So you don't have the apps and the the websites or anything. Like you're not, you're not plugged in back then to these things. You know, not, so many people didn't even have smartphones back then. So we just started Googling around and we, we had hit a message board called Chow Hound. And we saw that there was a lot of buzz about mac and cheese and where people go to get their favorite mac and cheese, but there was no place that just did different types of mac and cheese. And we were like, oh, wow, this is interesting. Mm-hmm. And we're already in this transition phase. You know, we had quit our jobs, our secure jobs in New Hampshire. We moved to the city. We promised each other that we would not take jobs in our fields unless we absolutely love them or we ran out of money. So that was something we had already made that promise to each other. Um, And eventually we thought that we were going to own our own business. We just thought it would be in the engineering field because that's what our education and training was in. But we couldn't drop the idea. It was like, oh, this is a good idea. And what would it take? So being engineers, we just started asking a lot of questions. We literally, we were pounding the pavement in these neighborhoods, talking to every business owner who'd be willing to talk to us, which is most people, most people do want to tell you their story, especially if they're newly in it. I find like, it's kind of like a, a, thera- a therapeutic for people because there's so much to share. So true. So yeah, it was, it was really awesome to see how transparent people were. And we, we figured, you know what, let's, let's give it a shot. So we made the decision that we would open up a, a mac and cheese place. And literally nine months later, we opened up Smack. 
So it was a very steep learning curve for us. Wow. I'll tell you, I love the fact that in your story, you did something that so many people sort of talk about and dream about, sadly regret about and and fantasize about, which is you truly followed a dream and you put yourself out there where you were just not going to settle for something of a, I don't know if the right word is a conventional life, but you said, look, we're going to either find something we love or we're going to go on this adventure. And I just think that's so cool, you know? Yeah, it was at the time, I think it just felt so right for both of us too. And it was, we were both in it together. That made a big difference too. Like we we, we both bought into the idea because, you know, yeah. this was so unknown for either of us. Like I had never even worked at a restaurant. Uh, Caesar had worked at a restaurant, an Indian, Indian restaurant while he was doing his master's in Dayton, Ohio. Yeah. So, and one of the things he had said, his dad was in the construction business. He said, I'm never going to get in the constru- construction business. The second thing he said was, I'm never going to get into the restaurant because <laughs> he used to see the owner like stress out of yeah. him so much, right? <laughs> you know, it's so funny, Sarita, because so many people, in fact, on the last episode, so many successful restaurateurs and people who have built restaurants and brands that have the staying power and that have just become really iconic are people that came to the space not from a culinary background. I I can think of so many people that we do business with and even interviews I've done. And there's a real interesting thread there that I'm going to think about and I want to explore with you. But just the notion of really time, you know, because people think about business a lot and it's understandable as a very, you know, money-driven type thing and, and commercial but there is a big aspect of it that is tied to self-actualization and artistry. And in your case, and you in Caesar's case, you know, listening to, to each other and, and making that decision. And I just can't think of a better sort of foundation for anything and, and certainly a business. So now you settle on mac and cheese, which was, you know, a great concept that you found that no one had specialized in. Did you or Caesar have any sort of connection to that dish other than loving it? Or was it also a work in progress and a learning experience as you ramped up the menu and, and the creations for the menu? Yeah, so the the menu, surprisingly, was probably the easiest part of opening the restaurant. We didn't, I mean, we both love mac and cheese, but we also both love to cook and we enjoy food so much. And I grew up in a household where everything was made. It it was interesting. So I grew up uh, first generation Indian. My parents came over to Nova Scotia in the 60s from India. And my mom made all of her Indian food from scratch. But I was like, I grew up as an 80s kid with everything else, like everything Canadian American or American and Canadian was really from like a can or a box. So I actually did not like mac and cheese growing up because it was out of a box. And I was in high school at a friend's place and they asked if I wanted to stay for supper and they pulled out this, you know, this bubbling casserole dish from their oven. And I looked at her I'm like, oh, what's that? And she just looked at me and laughed. She's like, uh, Sarita, it's mac and cheese. Like, <laughs> how would you not know what mac? I'm like, that is not what mac and cheese looks like wow. in my household. Yeah. <laughs> so literally, it was probably that 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 point onwards that that introduced me to, oh, this is like this is the real deal. This is a real dish from scratch. So it's not just you know you're adding some kind of powder to it, right? And so that was interesting to see. But that that was kind of my start on liking mac and cheese. But really, like both of us enjoying food and cooking so much and 
me being raised in a family where my mom was always in the kitchen making things from scratch, albeit it was Indian food, but it was everything was from scratch, especially in Nova Scotia, where she couldn't get any of these ready-made Indian foods. You know, in the 60s and 70s and in a small town in Canada, like it was amazing what she could come up with and, and create. So I think that that got passed on to me for sure. There, you know, I've always had an interest in food, an interest in like food science. Uh, And I think that Caesar and I, you know, with our engineering backgrounds, it's helped us a lot in designing the restaurant and, you know, a lot of other things like our takeout boxes and whatnot. But, but really the food science and the, the questions behind that and us looking for answers has helped a lot. No, that's awesome. And I think that that's another, if I would venture to guess, another reason behind your huge success, because you're utilizing your background, your scientific background, and bringing that to the creation of the food, because obviously food has an artistic aspect, but it's also, there's a a high level of craftsmanship and a high level of execution. Bringing in that scientific background must be immensely helpful. And one of the things that I also like is, and, and I see this with many other, you know, restaurants and dishes is, Whatever dish a person wants to select, mac and cheese, uh, chicken and mashed potatoes, scrambled eggs, you pick it. Things that people think are sort of basic or simple can be transformed into the most exquisite and delicious and complex but simple creation by the utilization of ingredients, the mix of those ingredients, incorporating new ingredients to it. It's kind of like your website, which I love this quote, elevating mac and cheese from a side dish to a meal. It's, it's almost one of the more perfect meal ideas or, or, or creations to do that with. And um, I don't know if you thought about it or, or not at the time, but the other great thing about mac and cheese from a business perspective is it appeals to everybody across the spectrum. I know my kids love it, right? But what, yeah. adult, what adult doesn't love it? And, and with all the stuff that you've got, either the menu offerings or the ability to build your own, it's really a, a dish that transcends every age, every Everything about humanity, there's a, there's somebody who's going to love one of those creations in mac and cheese, regardless of any other aspect. You know what I mean? Exactly. And it, it's actually kind of funny because literally just, be, I think it might have been just, just the week before, if not two weeks before we opened, we were gearing the restaurant not to be, uh, we didn't want it to be just a kid-friendly place. You know, we wanted it to span the spectrum of anyone from like age one to 101. You know, that, that yeah. we wanted it to be very... Uh, appealing to to adults, young adults as well. So we actually did our All American, which is one of our most popular songs. We didn't even have that on the menu. Like we weren't even thinking of kids at the time. We also didn't have kids at the time, right? right. So it was something that we were kind of wrong. We're like, well, we should put something basic on, I suppose, just something that everyone knows. And so we came up with the Met American and Cheddar Blend and threw it on the menu, which. In, you know, again, in hindsight, it was so funny that we weren't even thinking that way. But it is, of course, one of our most uh, adored recipes by kids and some adults still want, just want, you know, their whatever they remember growing up. Whenever I go to a steakhouse, or I wouldn't say whenever, but many times when I go to a steakhouse, I'm always hoping that one of my kids wants a side order of mac and cheese or I'll get it. <laughs> and I have fond memories from my childhood. Unfortunately, my mom didn't make it from scratch, but there was an amazing, you might remember this because I think we're from the same generation, Sarita, the Stouffer's frozen mac and cheese. Oh, yeah. It was amazing. (laughs) And that was sort of my go-to as a kid. But something I'm thinking about, because I grew up in New York City and I know it very well, and the East Village, as you and I were discussing earlier, it's an unbelievable neighborhood and 
we have many amazing customers in the East Village. And I'm thinking, you you opened your location on First Avenue. Was that a byproduct of just the fact that you loved the neighborhood so much? Or was it a decision that was based upon your thinking and that, you know what, this is this is a neighborhood that's really going to lend itself to this? Because remember, as you know, back in 05, you didn't have this third-party meal delivery stuff. And the world of delivery and takeout was much more limited. So how integral was the selection of your location, and and what was the what was the thinking behind it? Was it because you loved the neighborhood, or you liked it from a sort of business standpoint? What was the thinking behind that? Uh, I think because this was everything was happening so quickly for us, we we really wanted to make it as easy as possible and as least overwhelming as possible. So we already became we familiarized ourselves with this neighborhood living in it uh, for such a short amount of time. We noticed that a lot of the niche restaurants were in the East Village Lower East Side. So we just started pounding the pavement looking for locations in the neighborhood that we saw traction in. And because there was no other restaurant like ours, we would sit out, like our market research was sitting across the street seeing, okay, how many people are walking into Dumpling Man Monday at lunch or Tuesday at dinner time or Wednesday, you know, so this was like, this is where we could actually gather our research from other similar type of concepts and we also the other thing is we actually were thinking we'd we'd get a smaller space than what we originally did so we thought it was going to be kind of entirely like takeout with a few maybe a few seats for dine-in and then i of course did the wrong thing and fell in love with a space which people say don't ever fall in love with a space but i i fell in love with a space on 12th street between first and second avenue uh which was our original location now we're on the corner of first avenue because we got we secured a bigger space three years ago um just a few storefronts down Mm -hmm. but this space lend that that 345 east 12th street space was lending itself to at least having you know about 30 seats, which we thought was going to be a lot more than what we originally planned. But we did, we, you know, the price was right. It was a beautiful open, like the window storefront. So it got a lot of sunlight. It was close enough to the avenue, but far enough in that it was still less expensive. So it was one of those places where like, okay, let, let's just see. Let's, let's, you know, the rent is right. So even if we can't fill it all the time, we should be fine, you know? Well, your current <laughs> location is gorgeous. And Everything about the designing and the and the branding aspect is also it, it's it's really beautiful and it's really unique. The the branding from the box to the storefront, uh, you and Caesar had a hand or maybe did the entirety of all of those th- those types of creative elements of your restaurant. We did. We got we had a graphic designer help us design our logo, but that was you know we actually had to go through a couple graphic designers to get to this one because it's you know it's one thing again when you have this vision but to be able to translate it to someone so all these other graphic designers that we were going to were coming up with very cartoon-esque very kind of like childlike logos and that's again that's not what we were looking for that's not the demographic we were trying to appeal to we wanted to be again kid-friendly but you know we didn't want it to look any kind you know any it was looking very very much like a Johnny Rockets type logo. And that's not what we were looking for. So that, you know, we, we got a great graphic designer. It came very simple. Orange was going to be our theme color, no matter what, because it's been my favorite color since I can remember. And it goes hand in hand with mac and cheese anyway. Uh, but all of, yeah, all of the design elements and the creative parts of the brand and the restaurant came from Caesar and I, because that's actually our strength. And those are the things that we love to do. So when, Ever there's a new project on on you know our 
ever never ending uh, list of projects, we get really excited about that stuff because I think that's also the engineer in us. You know, we we both chose sure. engineering for a reason, and those projects really excite us. Uh, which also I think ties into what you were talking about earlier and how there's so many restaurateurs or you know business owners who, who own restaurants who didn't come from necessarily culinary background and. For us, I think, yes, our longevity in this business has a lot to do with the fact that this is something that we chose to do aside from our, you know, our standard career path. But also we never, we, we decided to do this to have flexibility as a husband and wife and now as parents as well. So owning our own business, we never wanted to uh, be chained to it so to speak like you know we didn't want to be in there you know for the first couple of years yes you're working 80 hours a week but we knew that we we're going to set up a system as such that we could take vacations we could you know tag team right now with a pandemic so we were able to tag team with childcare with our two kids you know those kinds of things but if you are actually coming from the culinary world and you have to be in your kitchen managing your kitchen every day then you're going to be working so many years and so many hours and it is going to burn you out. And that wasn't, you know, we didn't have that burden because we aren't chefs. We, we came up with the recipes, but we also came up with, with recipes that we could train people to make very easily. Right. So I think there's a, there's a big difference in that. Totally. And I think what you're talking about, because a lot of our, of our listening audience are people who aspire to own their own restaurant or bar, as well as people who are currently in that position and something you're talking about, which I think is very vital from the business side of things, is having your business structured in a sense where you can effectively delegate. And so even as the owner of the restaurant, you put in place systems and you put in place structures that enable you to not only have a life, but it puts you in a position to scale your concept. It puts you in a position to focus on different things. So you opened in 2005, and I have a, f- a few questions. Oh, on sorry, this. Yeah, yeah, 2006, yes. So the 2006. Idea came yeah, we opened June 2006. So you opened in 2006. How early on into the process did you start putting in these systems to lay the foundation for the flexibility that you have now? Was that something that you had sort of built into your thinking from inception, or is that something that arose organically as you went along in the process of running Smack? So it was in our minds, but we did not put that into effect. I would say until we opened 2006, it was early 2008. So I'd say about January 2008, that's when we felt the comfort level and also we had we had incentives, so we knew that we were gonna we were gonna travel to India for a month in late two thousand and eight, October of two thousand and eight, and we said this is this is it. You know, we put in almost you know a good year and a half of being here. Like I, we barely Caesar and I barely even saw each other. Like we literally would email to communicate because we were working all opposite shifts because one of us was always at the restaurant. Mm-hmm. So we we put a, a good year and a half. We have reliable staff uh we have so you know one of our our night kitchen manager we thought we at that point we could elevate him to general manager of the restaurant and we hired a bookkeeper and we basically started training people from that point onwards but it took you know it took until literally september of that year like to us to feel comfortable and even just before we left for india we were like oh are we making the right decision because it is you know it's something that you're so used to being in control of and now you're you're letting go of so much of the control no doubt Uh, and it's a big part of balance like i always think about this myself because on the one hand i'm always i spend a lot of time working with our team here in all departments because i want to 
have everybody be as strong and as self-sufficient as possible. But at the same time, partially because I really enjoy it and partially just maybe yeah. by instinct, I like to be involved as well. But I think in any business and certainly in the restaurant business, and I think it's something that's overlooked, so I'm really happy that we're talking about this. It really is important to sort of groom and value the the staff that you have because those are the people that are going to enable you to not only have flexibility to do what you want, to scale, what have you, but you don't want to burn out. And it's, you know, you have to learn to delegate. You have to learn to, yes, micromanage and and oversee everybody, you know, all the time at the beginning, but as you evolve in a business, especially if you're looking to have any flexibility or do anything, you've got to put in the time and energy. And it, it's it's a big time and energy uh, effort for me now as well to train and then let people go and then evaluate and have meetings, let people make mistakes, right? Because how else are yeah. they going to learn? And, exactly. Um, so let me ask you. So you opened in 2006. And as we were talking, as you mentioned earlier, in 2006, there's really no Yelp or there's no surfing on the internet. Now we evolve through time. How many of your customers would you say are people who are from the East Village that know about it from living there or have heard about it or they see the beautiful storefront? And how many are people that are coming there because they've seen it on social media, they've seen it somewhere and like, oh, this is really cool. This is like this mac and cheese spot. I want to go there. Because in 2006, it's, I think, a lot harder to generate that attention and clientele from outside the neighborhood versus today. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. You know, I would have to, I'd have to guess on that. I don't know uh, exact numbers, but I would say that Oh, and also we're in weird times because of the pandemic, you know, during yeah, the past sure, couple, sure. yeah, these, these, so if I say pre-pandemic, because there are differences now with the pandemic, pre-pandemic, I would say we probably get, I'd say anywhere between 60, 60-ish, depending on time of year and tourist season, 60-ish percent of regulars and maybe 30 to 40% of either a combination of tourists or people trying it for the first time or very new, newbie, they try it for the first or second time. Now, interestingly enough, because uh, since March, so many people have left the city, we've gotten a lot of people who, who are trying us for the first time, um, a lot of new customers. And thank goodness for them, because a lot of our regulars just have not been around. You know, they probably won't, aren't coming back until the fall now. Right. So That's cool. Yeah. No, I mean, yeah. when I say that that's cool, I mean, like, I've heard that story from a lot of people. Like, the pandemic has obviously created a lot of challenges, but I think it's also opened up a lot of different doors and a lot of different ways of thinking. I know in, in our business here at Woolco, it's opened my eyes to things that I probably wouldn't have seen before and, and pursued, you know, certain avenues of business. Now, the mac and cheese itself, how much... Because again, another aspect that's related to the pandemic, but is is important even pre-pandemic. How important is takeout and delivery? And I'm guessing, as somebody who's not an expert, so I'm just going to put it out there. But please correct me if I'm wrong. Sure. That because of your menu and because mac and cheese, I'm thinking that's the type of dish that would lend itself really well to takeout and delivery because it's such a meal that you think about of eating at home as well as eating out. But am I right on that, or, or what do you think? You are. And and the nice thing is that we already had that model set up anyway. So us to make that shift back in March was was very uh, simple. It was just a matter of, okay, we need more people to order takeout and delivery now because we're losing you know the 60% of sales that is typically dine-in. But our food, yes, it, it 
it travels well. Uh, it is food that probably people like to order in because they can eat more of it in the privacy of their own home. <laughs> right, right. I can eat a whole tray. Um, right, right. It's like one of those things. So we, we definitely, uh, our food is, is conducive for that. I think it's also been really nice because the first few months during the pandemic, people were driving in from like very deep in the boroughs to pick up smack because there was no traffic on the roads, right? So yeah. we actually started something now where my, myself, Caesar, and the two kids, we hop in a car and we do these borough deliveries that people do in advan- order in advance because the traffic is back up to almost regular traffic. And we're like, we don't want to lose those, these people who were ordering from us and we want to be able to get them smack. So that's a whole other, you know, angle to our business that we we've thought about in the book before, but we never thought of how we could do it. Would we be successful doing it? See, that's um, exactly what I'm talking yeah. about. Like once we get on the other side of the pandemic and things, you know, slowly return back to normal and, and you're regular and people are back in the city, you now have a whole new demand that you're going to be able to accommodate. And, and that demand's not going to go away because people who love mac and cheese and are loving getting it from your restaurant, they're going to still want it. And probably had this never happened, although you said you were thinking about it, so maybe you would have. But I know, like, I'll analogize it to one of our initiatives, which is home delivery. You know, it's, it's something that's never going to be anything close to, to taking the place or being as important, you know, just to put out there in honesty, as handling our, our B2B customers. But it well, is something that we've, we've enjoyed doing, and it's, it's something I would have never thought of doing pre this. And I think it's it's kind of cool. So like you've picked up a whole new universe of customers because they're going to be telling people as well. And maybe that wouldn't have happened to such a large extent, but for this, you know? Right, exactly. I, I, yeah, I highly doubt it because it is, like you said, it's it's you have to find these opportunities. They're out there. And if you don't though, it's, it's, it's I mean, it's still a struggle, but it makes that struggle so much harder. <laughs> Absolutely. Sometimes we're forced to, you know, do these things um, in circumstances we would rather not have to deal with. And certainly this is an example of that. But on the other hand, when we look back on it, we might find that it was something that we would have uh, not done otherwise and and could be uh, something we're very happy about. The other thing which I I love about your restaurant and, and what you do is your social media. With respect to that, because to me, like it, it seems like it's it's a hundred and, and it is it's a hundred percent authentic. It's tied into so many different aspects of what you're doing, and it 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 beautifully ties into just the whole concept of mac and cheese and all of that. How important do you find social media to be? Not from a macro sense, because we all know how important it is and, and and how much attention is paid to social media, but more more on the micro level in terms of either communicating about your brand or bringing people to your restaurant because they find you on social media? How much time do you spend on that and, and what type of thought do you put into it? So uh, it, it's interesting you bring this up because it, it's, and thank you, those are such kind words and it actually warms my heart to hear them because we we do our social media on our own. It's either me or Caesar posting and a lot of times it's Caesar posting me looking over his shoulder. I'm like, okay, give that to me. Hand me your phone, scrap that. It doesn't sound like us. So we actually had, um, we had, a few people many years ago, I feel like now it's at least six years ago when a lot of these platforms are getting super popular. We had someone doing our social media for us for a shorter period of time. And they were, they were great, but it, it, I didn't feel like the voice ever sounded like mine. That was the thing, right? It was, you know, it was something that was probably, there were younger girls and, and it wasn't me. 
So we, ca- we, we brought that back onto ourselves to do. And we keep saying to each other, you know, if we're not going to hire someone to do this, we just need to plan better to have more, uh, more frequent postings. But we've been trying to do better with that. And also, I, do, I have to say, I do enjoy it. But I think that what we really love about social media is, you know, people know we're a mac and cheese place. People know they can go to our website. They can get a sense of what our dishes are and, and other uh, review sites. But it's nice to kind of highlight what we're doing with the restaurant aside from the food. And that's that's kind of been a very important thing for both Caesar and I, you know, as soon as we got into the restaurant business, one of the shocking things we, you know, that it was so new to us and so we were so green was just unfortunately how poorly people get treated in the restaurant business. You know, we'd have people coming for interviews and getting, you know, we'll hear their horror stories of not being treated well, not being paid well, being put to like crazy overtime, not getting paid the overtime. And we're like, okay, we come from very white collar backgrounds and like lovely offices with perks and whatnot. And so one of the things that we aspire to do and we keep trying to do is just bring more benefits and training to our staff and, and we want them to grow as a person at the company. So we also like to support the arts in our neighborhood and elsewhere. So, you know, we had this, we like to use our social media just to kind of boost up, I guess, other people around us too. Like totally. we had this program where now we started, again, we started during the pandemic, but we had this idea many years ago. It's like, it's kind of like, you know, put a fire under our butts to do more of our projects. But we had this where we, we, we get a short story or a poem from a, from a writer every week and we staple that short story or poem and highlight that writer and put it on every box that goes out of our restaurant, every order. And that's so something cool. we, we wanted to do in-house. We actually thought it'd be like, you know, the short stories of snack. When you come and have a skillet of mac and cheese, you can read a short story if you're by yourself. So, you know, instead of like always having to be looking on your phone, right. We thought it'd be a nice, a nice way to, uh, to just highlight some artists in the community, but because we're not doing dining, we're like, why can't we do this on takeout? We can do it on takeout very easily. So, and that's kind of like weekly, we have that as our social media posts. Also just kind of highlighting what other community members are doing in East Village, because East Village is very active as far as people being living here for a long time, giving back to the community. So I, I find that that's a really important part of our social media. Mind you, I will admit, when we throw a picture of a skillet of mac and cheese on there, that's going to get way more likes, way more comments, of course. especially on Instagram, because that's, you know, it's, it's just so, but it's I, so pleasurable to the eye. No right? doubt. But yeah. I really I really respect the fact and that you're not putting up posts just for likes, because I think that that's sort of the surest way to have a social media presence that's not impactful. I mean, you, you know, you're talking a lot about involvement in the neighborhood, and that's almost a universal truth for restaurants that are successful, you know, involvement in the community and and it's never been more important than it is right now, but it but it's always been essential. And then utilizing your social media to elevate other people, you're doing it for the most noble of reasons and people that are looking at that, it communicates so much about you and about your restaurant and about your values that it has aspects of it to you know, it has positive aspects to it that are not readily transparent but are so important and I, I really respect that because I don't like to follow um, and I don't follow and I, I don't like social media being used to try to present the most perfect image of anything. You know, I don't like whether it's people posting pictures of, this is just me, like 
the people I follow on social media outside of the restaurant business, somebody like a David Goggins, right? Or even a Mark Wahlberg, even though Mark Wahlberg's really successful and affluent, most of what he posts are things that anybody can relate to, whether it's working out or things that are in alignment with his values. And I think you doing that is really cool. And I love that idea about the poetry because I, I write myself. So I, one day I might even submit something, although I'm not you in East Village. Yes, I would yeah. like to. We actually, you know, we've had, we've had uh, people from outside of the East Village too. So we, we, we'd like to share the love for sure. It's, it's something fun, you know, it's, and it's kind of nice just to get a piece of your writing exposed that maybe to, to people who might not necessarily ever see it. Right. So it's, it's, it's a nice thing. Now, just a, a question I have, because I remember in 2008 before the market, and I know you were in business then as well. So in, in 08, you know, there was a major dislocation in the financial markets, very different from the pandemic because it was purely a financial uh, event, but it was a profound financial event. And one of the consequences in the following years was a lot of successful restaurants who for years had been on the more disadvantaged side of the negotiating table when it came to rent and other things had a lot more power. And so I saw a number of our customers either renew leases at more favorable terms, take on other spaces, uh, expand, what have you. And I think that that's going to happen again, and and maybe it's going to happen on steroids based upon some other factors such as the the, the um, erosion of, of retail and in replacement for e-commerce, which was going on pre-pandemic. Have you ever thought... Or is that something that you're thinking about now on potentially capitalizing on? I only ask you this because your concept and your menu is so phenomenal that it really, you know, there are certain concepts that you can only see on a certain block in a certain neighborhood for a certain clientele and therefore, but I think what you have is so, as we said earlier, universal. Is that something that has crossed your radar yet? Or or what are your thoughts on that in terms of just from the business side of things and the opportunities that may be available as we move to the other side of this? Yeah, we definitely, since 2005, since the, the, the concept came to us, uh, we always thought of Smack as bigger than just one store, for sure. And we, and we, we ventured down that road on our own. You know, we did that. We opened up a, a kiosk and a second location and subsequently had to close both of those because at the end of the day, it was always just myself and Caesar. And our bandwidth was, was not large enough to take on three shops, and then eventually two kids. So we, starting last year, we we got to a very, you know, we got to a much healthier financial position because, you know, we still are servicing some of the debt from those old shops. So basically we, we, got, we got to a, a much healthier financial position to say, okay, we're, we will be ready. And this was in 2019. We was like, you know, by 2021, we're going to be ready to, to look at expansion again and bring on the right people this time to help us do it and have operations managers because we know what our strengths are. And duplication of the restaurant is not our strength. The projects within the re- restaurant that are going to enhance what the brand is all about, that's our strength. So I really respect that. And I, I, I brought that up because I wanted other people to get that the insight from what you're saying. First of all, your timing is going to be perfect, I think. And second of all, one of the challenges that I've seen in this business is people not really being fully aware of their strengths and not being fully aware of where you want to bring in someone else who has strengths. I know in my own you know, business, there are things where I'm very comfortable with, where I feel, although I'm always learning and I'm always trying to stay humble and open to new, new stuff, 
But there are many times when you want to take on an initiative and you have to take a step back and say, look, because I think a lot of people make the mistake, and, and I've heard Warren Buffett and other people talk about this, that just because you're expert in one thing doesn't make you an expert in everything. And I think that the, um, the comments that you're making are, are really very valuable for our audience because, you know, you have a phenomenal concept. And I think by partnering up, not even not partnering up, but by utilizing people whose expertise will complement your own, so important. And uh, it's good for people to hear that from the inception. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, for us, we're like, we're not here to reinvent all of that, that, that process, because there are so many people out there who are so good at it, who've done multiples of many different brands. And that's not where we know that's not where our excitement lies. We're also not, we're not as young as we were 15 years ago. Right. So I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm in my mid forties, my husband's 50 and we want to be able to focus on the things that we're good at. And that also that give us that, uh, that joy. You know, that give us the purpose that we're looking for. You know, um, I really have enjoyed this interview immensely, Sarita. And I would encourage anyone in the audience that's thinking of opening a restaurant or a bar to really listen to it again. Because what I've gotten out of it, among other things, is one, this entire journey and, and so many of the comments that you're making go back to things that you love things that you're doing out of joy, things that are coming because it's a reflection of what you want to do with your life. And I think that's what everyone wants to do. I know that's what I would like to aspire to do in my life, be doing things that you love. And yet at the same time, of course, you have to put in the work like you were doing before and uh, and talking about that. And then the other thing, which I really respect about what you've accomplished, what you and Caesar have accomplished, is just leveraging the skills and the expertise that you brought from your engineering background and using it to, you know, I don't know if the word would be elevate, but just bringing that skill set to every aspect of your restaurant gives it something unique that someone who didn't have your background in engineering would never be able to replicate. And that's what's so cool about the restaurant industry and food in general when it's done right, when people are incorporating all these unique aspects of themselves that seem as if they're outside of the space, but in reality can be married to it, you know, yes, very nicely. Most definitely. Well, it's really an honor to have you on. It's an honor to do business with you. And uh, for people that want to know where you can get the absolute best mac and cheese in the world, you can go to 197 First Avenue in New York City. You can go to their website, www.eatsmac.com. Follow them on social media. Their Instagram handle and all other handles are eatsmac, as I said, E-A-T-S. M-A-C. I really encourage everyone to check them out on Instagram. It's one of the best pages I've seen and and I uh, always look forward to it. So Sarita, again, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. I've, I've enjoyed this immensely. Thanks, Stephen. It was a lot of fun. I really loved that interview. There was so much value in it and I appreciate Sarita taking time to do that. From the business side of things, there was so much in there. The part I loved was to hear about Sarita and Caesar doing something that most people don't do, and they look back on it and regret that they didn't, which is follow their dream. You know, from the beginning, they pursued step-by-step a certain dream, and it happened to evolve into the creation of this unbelievable restaurant called Smack. And I'm always humbled uh, when I hear people doing that. I believe in an earlier episode, I recommended a book called Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. 
If I did not recommend it, I, I have to go back and check. Uh, I really recommend that book. But what I want to recommend today, which is a little bit different, is a podcast interview between Jay Shetty, S-H-E-T-T-Y, and David Goggins. It's on Jay Shetty's podcast. If you don't know who he is, he's a fascinating guy. David Goggins, former Navy SEAL, Army Ranger, Air Tac. Guys run ultra marathons. But what I love about Goggins is he's an amazing philosopher. And whenever I listen to him speak, I get so much value from it. And it stimulates so much thinking and positivity within me that I did want to share that with all of you. So check out that interview. Uh, between Jay Shetty and, and David Goggins. For those of you that have been emailing me and DMing me, thank you. I love hearing from everybody on any subject. You can email me at steven at com. You can also reach me on our Wolco Foods Instagram page and DM me there. And uh, if you like the podcast, please subscribe. Please recommend the podcast to others. They don't have to be in the restaurant or hospitality business. If you love food, if you love New York, if you love entrepreneurship, if you love conversations about any of those things, that's what this podcast is about. And I appreciate each and every one of you for listening and um, just have a great, great day. Thank you for listening to The Profitable Table fed by Woolco Foods. Please be sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And to learn more about Woolco Foods or Stephen Toberoff, please visit us at woolcofoods.net.